0: If you're like me, you love and miss that golden era of Christian music. From the Jesus music of the '70s, the monster vocalists of the '80s, and the creativity and risk taking of the '90s and early 2000s, I'm Andy Chrisman, and for the past four decades, I was privileged to be smack dab in the middle of this crazy and beautiful thing that we call CCM. As a member of the group for him, I got to know so many great people with even greater stories, and I don't want to keep these stories to myself. That's why I created One Degree of Andy, so you can join me as I reminisce with my friends and colleagues. My Is that as you experience these conversations, you'll go back and listen to that golden era of music and fall in love all over again, just like I have. This is the One Degree of Andy podcast. so I'm gonna do my best not to geek out with my guest on this episode of One Degree. My 14-year-old self would not believe that I get to sit down with DeGarmo and Keys, Eddie DeGarmo, and talk about his career, his music, his early days, and his mind-blowing impact on the world of Christian music. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised that Eddie is one of the most genuine, engaging people I've ever met in this industry. And I'll for sure be spinning my old D&K records for the next few weeks. Just being reminded of songs like 666, All the Losers Win, Stella This Ain't Hollywood, Casual Christian, my goodness, what a catalog and what a legacy. Now as always before we get started I want to remind you to consider becoming a premium subscriber. So many of you already have and I want to thank you for that so that you can get early access to episodes, watch exclusive video content, and hear member only episodes. Just follow the link in the episode description and sign up. It is super easy. Now Here's my conversation with the one and only Eddie DeGarmo. So I have a vision of sitting in my parents' house on the floor with my headphones on, and when I would I would mow lawns or I would, you know, get money for doing chores around the house, I would go down to the Christian record store and buy Christian albums. First Christian album I bought was Priority by by the Imperials. Mm, and then I one. went right back yeah. and got I went right back and got one more song for you like the next day. Yeah. And then I just started exploring, and I'd pick up albums by Leon Patillo. And, uh, and then I discovered DeGarmon Key. And that music was as good as what I was hearing on secular radio. I mean, as I, and, but it had this, this incredible walk of faith telling the story of our lives in Christ. And I just became a huge fan and literally devoured, waited until the next record came out. The next record came out. The next record came well, out. Very kind words. And so. I am just, I'm excited to talk to you because not only do I feel like in the late 70s, early 80s, you guys had a hand in transforming Christian music, but then your second act might have been even more profound, my starting forefront. Mm-hmm. And we can get into that as well mm-hmm. and how you changed the landscape of the, the music industry in that regard. And so I don't know where this conversation is going to go. I just, I'm excited to sit down and have a conversation with the great eddie oh. DeGarmo. so welcome to the one degree of andy podcast
1: well thank you so much for inviting me to be part well you know? i'm
0: thrilled i'm thrilled that you so, would say yes so yeah man you know when i do these podcasts i'll sit down with an artist and i'm like hey um you should have so and so on So so and on." i'm like will you share their number with me because <laughs> i'm like some That's people right. you know you'll text <laughs> them and you don't get an answer back and you answered me and i'm just i was just thrilled that one of my musical heroes would would text me back and say, sure, I'd love to be part of Well, in my
1: vintage age, I have plenty (laughs) of time. (laughs) No, I'm honored to be part. Thank you for inviting me. And, uh, you know, your comment about wearing the headphones and listening to some of our early music, and uh, I appreciate that. And my background was in mainstream music. You know, I, I signed my first record contract when I was 15. Oh, wow. I didn't know the Lord at the time. Yeah. And Dana Key was in my band, and what's really funny is neither one of us sang. We were in a ten-piece soul band, and we had three lead singers. Wow! And uh, so when when we gave our lives to Christ, it was right before we graduated high school.
0: Uh, and how did that happen? What? How did you meet Christ?
1: Well, a little bit of a, a detailed story. My older brother. It was during the Vietnam War. Uh, he came home from the army, and he was a very different kind of guy. Mm. But not not in the way that one would think, necessarily. Uh, I come from just like a normal middle-class background, grew up in Southern Baptist Church, you know, and all of that. Uh, but when he came home, he got wild. He went out and bought a big motorcycle, started riding with a motorcycle gang. And uh, we didn't know what had happened to him, you know. And uh, was it something that took place in the service or whatever? And I was playing in a dance band through those years. And as I mentioned, I didn't know the Lord. And uh, I came home one night about 2 o'clock in the morning from playing a dance somewhere north of Memphis and walked into our house, and my brother was sitting with the lights off at the kitchen table. And I turned the light on, and he had a Bible on the table, and he had a bottle of Jack Daniels on the table. And I said, man, what what's going on? And he said, Eddie, he said, "Uh, sit down. He said, i got to tell you a story. He said, when I was stationed overseas, he said, "Uh, I went to a Bible study and I dedicated my life to Jesus. And when I came home, I was just too afraid to tell anybody. Mm. And so I tried to run. And the way I ran was by the motorcycle and join the gang and all that sort of thing. And then he said a remarkable thing. He said, but God won't let me go. And he said, so I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, I know that sounds pretty weird, but he said, it's a whole lot different than what we thought of that growing up in our little, you know, American Pie Southern Baptist Church. Nothing against that, but, you know, just more than we knew. And over the next uh, three or four months, he just witnessed to me pretty much relentlessly. I mean, we actually got in a couple of fist fights over it. Oh my God. How weird that is. Wow. So, uh, but I went to. Uh, so nobody in your family was a believer, like that wasn't, you know, church growing up or? They were a product of the American post war fifties yeah. and were religious, uh-huh. but really didn't have, um, what I call a, a, a deep belief of following Jesus and knowing him on an everyday basis, mm. you know? That did come later for them. And I'm yeah. thankful for that. But my mom and dad were good people, and I grew up in a good family. But our mantra was: a you know, you might do a few things growing up, just don't get caught. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> yeah. be smart about it. Right? Yeah. That was pretty much the mantra in my yeah. family, and I, th- I think a lot of families in the 50s were that. Post-war families were that Interesting. way. Yeah. So that uh, I became a believer. At a Dallas home, David Wilkerson crusade. Oh, wow. On March 8th, 1972. And uh, I went back to school the very next day and saw my friend, Dana Key. We were seniors just a month from graduating. And uh, told him, I said, Dana, I got got to talk to you, man. I found Jesus. And he said, well, Eddie, I didn't know he was missing. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I'm being serious. And I said, "Let's." I said, "Let's skip school, and I'll tell you about it." So I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> so we skipped school, and I, you know, told him my story, and uh, he became a believer that day. Wow. He, he prayed to receive Christ, and so wow. we were off on our journey, and that took a while to find the road, you know. Yeah. But, and uh,
0: where where was it that you were going to high school? Where'd you grow up?
1: Memphis, Tennessee. Oh. I grew up in the shadow of Graceland. You've got the Sun Studio house. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. Uh, My family moved to Memphis from Detroit. I was born in Detroit. Mm -hmm. and moved there in 1959. And uh, we moved almost across the street from Graceland. It was just, there was a woods and over the hill, and you could be in Elvis's front yard. So I grew up seeing him uh, ride his horses and his motorcycles and stand at his gate. And I really wasn't a fan necessarily of Elvis's music. He was a little before my time you know, my big brothers were, Mm -hmm. I became quite a fan of his later when I figured out how revolutionary he was when he came on the scene. But I was more into the, you know, the British invasion bands, 60s. I
0: was going to ask who your influences were during that time. Who were you listening to?
1: Well, I mean, like most kids in my age group, uh, I was born in early fifties. So I was a huge fan of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks. and, And, uh, you know, Three Dog Night and the Beach Boys and Led Zeppelin and, and Grand Funk Railroad and those kind of bands. And, uh, and I also liked soul music a lot. I liked Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and Sam and Dave. Yeah. And the Motown sound from Detroit. Mm-hmm. You know, soul music from Memphis was from a studio called Stacks. And Motown, of course, was Mot- Motor City in Detroit.
0: Yeah.
1: But, uh, those songs that I thought were very heartfelt and the vocalist, I mean, my gosh, Otis Redding, who can sing like that? And the man died when he was 26. Of course, he sounded like he was 65, mm-hmm. you know. So uh I grew up in that environment playing that kind of music in Memphis and melting it with, with rock and roll of the British bands. And, and then
0: were you just so, always playing through high school? Was that something you, know, you kind of grew up as a— A
1: guitar player you you took that took to it at an early age like my mother played piano in our church in michigan yeah and started me playing piano when i was three and probably like most three-year-olds i hated it
0: right (laughs) yeah same i just was the same thing i started it i started at four yeah yeah,
1: i wanted to be outside playing football or baseball or whatever Mm -hmm. and so she had me playing piano early on in life and uh she farmed me out. I call her a piano witch, but she farmed me out to <laughs> to a, a piano teacher. Yeah. And she was a smart lady because she did something, I think, that had a huge impact on my life because I hated piano, hated playing. She went out and she said, well, she said, what kind of songs do you like? And I said, the Beatles. And so she went out and bought me a Beatles songbook. And oh, she wow. said, well, let's learn these. Yeah. And I'm telling you, that changed everything. Huh. I kind of did the same thing. My parents
0: started me at like four years old. And uh, I hated doing scales and oh, classical sure, stuff. Sure. And I wanted to play what I heard on the radio. That's and so right. my, my piano teacher did the same thing. Went out and bought yeah. bought popular music that was on the sheet music. And, you know,
1: let's, let's, let's keep you interested. And I, I went on to play for 12 years. The really funny thing about that story with the songbook is I still have it. Oh, no way. And what's pretty sick is that. I practiced signing my autograph all through it. <laughs> well, I was like eight, yeah. you know, or nine. <laughs> uh, so, got to prepare sometime. Anyway, yeah. music was a big part of my life. And uh, um, people ask me all the time, well, how did you start playing in bands? That's a pretty funny story. Yeah. Because it, I, I say, well, it happened in the West Memphis Dog Track. Uh, my dad, the good Baptist he was, went to bet on the dogs. On a Wednesday night, one night, he won twelve hundred bucks. Oh, wow! All right, which was That's a big night. lot yeah. of money in nineteen sixty four. Yeah, went out the next day, probably because he felt guilty from you know uh, <laughs> betting gambling, and bought me a Farfisa organ and a little Grudge amplifier, and I was nine, and so I was the only kid in the neighborhood that had a had a combo organ, right? Wow! So I got in all the bands. And in those days in Memphis there was a band on every street corner. Yeah. I bet. I mean, it was a yeah. big time for music in Memphis. And so I started playing in dance bands. And this is predates being with Dana Key. That happened a few years later, but uh started playing in dance bands. I still have pictures of me playing at these sock ops and different things in the fifty or early sixties. And then know. how did you and Dana meet? Well, we met in the first grade. Uh we grew up in the same neighborhood. Wow. And met in the first grade. Uh, I still remember. I was out on the playground that afternoon, and he had a little gang of greasy-nosed minions that, you know, <laughs> followed him around, and he wanted me to be in his gang. And I said, no way, man. I said, I'm going to form my own gang. <laughs> <laughs> Two alphas. Two alphas meeting each other. Right. I love it. So we <laughs> that's how we met. Wow. And basically competed with one another the rest of our lives. <laughs>
0: wow. wow. And then... So tell me about the band that you were together in after high school, like um, when you started. You started really being able to make a living at this.
1: Well, when when we gave our lives to Christ, we were in a, a mainstream rock band that had signed a, a major record deal with a, a label called London Records, and had the Rolling Stones and ZZ Top at that time, and we had recorded a couple singles for them, and mm-hmm. we working on an album. And um, after I I told Dana I found Jesus that morning. I thought that it would work pretty much the same way at band practice that night. So I went, we went to practice and I said, Hey guys, I got to tell you, I've had a change in my life. I I gave my life to Jesus. And they were like, Oh man, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, let's play that song by Santana. (laughs) You know what I mean? Anything to not talk about that. Yeah. So we stayed in that band for the next three months, just kind of winding things down. And Mm -hmm. it, it, Soon became apparent it was a well of water for us, so we left uh, while we were still under contract, and uh, we were kids and our parents had to sign you know for us. Yeah, we were seventeen, and uh, Christian music for us was r- genuinely just about writing songs about our faith. And we had no idea there was a Christian music industry. Yeah, the only kind of Christian music that we were familiar with is old hymns from church mm-hmm. and the Southern Gospel bands around town. And, and this was 1972, Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. So, so it was really, uh, Christian music was just in its infancy. Right? It was yeah. in its infancy. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't know anything about Christian music labels yeah. or the, even the possibilities of doing music, you know, professionally yeah. was yeah. beyond. Southern Gospel was about it. Yeah. A little bit of black gospel. Yeah. So. And Southern gospel in Memphis was a big deal. And uh-huh. they, had, they had the gospel quartet convention there in Memphis at that time. And my dad was a fan of that. And he used to drag me down there when I was a kid. And I just remember these guys had really shiny suits and they could <laughs> sing real, they could sing crazy high notes. Yeah. Right. So it was um, a
0: definite subculture, too. Once you get inside that world, it's, it was. It was real interesting. It was.
1: Yeah. So, um, We just started writing songs about our faith, Dana and I did, and we would play, we we tried playing in clubs, the same clubs I tried playing in the dance bands, and figured out that that didn't work too good. People would throw things when you talk about Jesus. So then we had this really inventive idea. We decided we'd try playing in churches, and we got more things thrown at us. Oh, I bet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because there weren't a lot of drums and amplifiers in churches at that
1: time. No. In fact, Churches weren't receptive to that kind of music. The day that I gave my life to Jesus was the first time I had ever seen a, a guitar played in church. Well, Dallas Holm was the guy that counseled me the day that I got saved at a David Wilkerson crusade in 1972. And uh, I asked him, I asked Dallas that day, uh, and I didn't know who he was. I didn't know him from Adam. I just thought it was really cool somebody was playing guitar in a church. I'd never seen anybody yeah. do that before. It was always a pipe, an organ or uh-huh. a piano. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, Dallas, I said, uh, am I going to have to quit my band? And he looked back and he paused for a second and he said, I don't know that answer, but you have to be willing to. It was really a great answer. Yeah, that's right. You know, in other words, you got to lay it all on the table. Uh-huh. And when you give your life to Jesus, you don't hold back anything. Yeah, that's good. And uh, so, yeah, that's
0: how that works. Do you still keep in touch with Dallas? At, A little bit, yeah. Yeah. occasionally. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. he did, did he remember that later on when you guys started having some
1: success? Probably not. Uh, we talked about it. Yeah. But I don't know that he, he probably actually, had so
0: many of those conversations yeah. and prayer moments with people. And Well, and. and, and you know that. I mean, you've, yeah. you've talked to so many people after concerts, and there'd be no way you would remember everyone. You know, he
1: was doing crusades with. With Wilkerson, uh-huh. which was pretty popular at that moment in time, yeah. and uh, uh, so he, I don't think he he, re, he actually remembered being in Memphis, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But we've talked about that several times through the years.
0: Did uh, I mean DeGarmo and Key had always had such a great ring to it? Did you ever fight over whose name was going first? We did. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about earlier, uh, you know, we
1: did. Two we, aggressive we, people. We tried Key and DeGarmo, and it didn't seem to sound, didn't roll quite. Yeah, it didn't feel way. right, does it? and Pat Boone, you know, we signed to his label him and him and Mike Curb had a label called Lament Line. Yeah, I remember that. That signed us in 1977. And uh Pat wanted us to call our band Memphis. Interesting. It's probably a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah, it probably was. <laughs> you know, but it was when Chicago and Boston and there were a couple others that were around and mm-hmm. felt real trendy, yeah. you know, so we didn't do it.
0: So. Yeah. And so they sign you, and your first record comes out, is it 78, 79? January
1: 78. Okay. Yeah. We recorded it in fall of 77. Yeah. I, that's one of the first records I bought. I
0: bought, the first record I bought of yours was Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Mm. Or Stella the St. Hollywood. Which, what was, the, what Stella was it? The Saint Stella the St. Hollywood. Stella
1: the St. Hollywood. Right? That was our third album, actually.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. was it really?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was what was the name of the first one? This time through. Okay. And second one was Straight On. Straight On. I've had that one. And uh, uh, then we made this in Hollywood, and then we mm-hmm. did one called Live, Absolutely Live. Yeah. I think I had that one, and I, I had every one of them. And
0: of course, then it went to cassettes, and then it went to CDs.
1: But I have still have a lot of those albums at home. It was funny. When we did the live album, the, the art director ghosted in the background on the album cover just live 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 over and over the word live yeah and of course our critics said it was evil because it's oh live backwards is (laughs) evil
0: (laughs) and there was a lot of that back then wasn't there
1: oh we got thrown out of some of the best
0: places oh my gosh i bet you did yeah Yeah. you know that's that's one of the things i remember really loving about your music too was it was it was on the edge and my parents didn't like it, but they didn't keep me from listening to it. Well, And, and I was, I, I mean, it was it was so interesting to me because you were talking about real life issues, not just what I was
1: hearing about in church. I got a pretty thick skin about the criticism in those days, uh, but I look back on it now, and I don't think all that was bad, and I don't think all that was wrong. I wish the church of today would be more discriminant about things that come into it Sure, different fads and different you know well the pendulum swing definitely now was, you know the other end of it yeah for sure and uh uh but yeah in those days it wasn't uncommon for us to get thrown out of places or asked to leave or quit yeah yeah.
0: well you bring up david wilkerson you know so famously seeing demons coming out of the speakers (laughs) with uh myelin and he wrote books about me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, are you serious? <laughs> and he's the one that led me to the Lord. That's what's really funny. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. He mentioned me in a couple of his books. Huh. So as being a, you know, a propaganda artist. Wow. So.
0: Wow. I mean, so like that, that's really interesting. What did you, <clears throat> so how did you deal with that? I mean, you said you had thick skin, but I mean, come on. Well, I mean, It I does mean, affect you because you're, you feel like you've heard the call of the Lord to go do what you're going to do. He's given you these songs. And now you're getting criticized by the same people you want to do ministry with or you have done ministry with or you want to, you know, you want to you want to lock arm in arm. I mean, that's what we want to do really in the kingdom of God, right? Yeah, some
1: of it it hurt for sure. Uh, But I never really thought about uh, dealing with the powers that be at the time. I probably could have done better had I thought about it more because the kids you know, our, our peer group and the younger kids that were listening to our music, they all loved it. And so they drove hundreds of miles sometimes to see us play yeah, and that sort of thing. So um, the controversy, Andy, I think, was one of the major drivers that God used to popularize what we were doing. Because radio stations wouldn't play our music much in their mm. early days. Yeah, They were a handful, yeah. you know, but not very many. Yeah, And that came later. But uh, in the early days, it was word of mouth, man. Or it was a newspaper story about, you know, the devil on the altar type thing. (laughs) (laughs) It was one or the other. And And you were doing music videos back then, too, right? Well, we started, we were one of the first, I think, maybe the first Christian group to do music videos in the the early 80s when MTV Mm -hmm. came on the scene. Mm -hmm. I remember those. And uh, we're able to get our videos shown on MTV, which in those, you know, kids today don't realize that yeah. music videos were such a big deal back then but you know it was a new format
0: and you could push it a little bit yeah a little more freedom i talked to mike rowe of the 77s yeah. not long yeah. ago and we talked about just how forward their videos were and on the edge they were and how it yeah it really drew a lot of criticism from the church but i mean they kind of the same way thick skin they're from they're from sacramento and right. they're just like yeah bring it on we want to push the
1: envelope here well it was a little bit of that and uh now in 1980 we, I had made friends with a fellow named Mike Blanton. Mm-hmm. He was an A and R guy at Word Records in those days, Then he formed a management company called Blanton and Harold. That their first client was Amy Grant, yeah. right?
0: Yeah,
1: and she was really starting to get popular. And so Blanton called me seventy nine or eighty one of those years and said, "Eddie," he said, "We're going to go on tour with. We've never toured with a band with Amy. It's always just been a guitar." You know, backing her up, and would you guys consider, you know, being her band? And you know, you can play your own set, and then you can back Amy up. That was quite a step of courage for him to do that. So we toured with Amy in 1980 and 81 as her band, and then we did a few songs in the middle of the set, and it opened our eyes to a wider. Thing that could happen with our music mm-hmm. uh, if we would address uh, media, radio in particular. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Andy, yeah, I still remember this is a really funny story, but this is a big. There was a big radio station, probably still there in Seattle, and uh, we were doing a radio interview, one of our first, and this would probably been early 1978.
0: Everybody has good memories of their yeah. first radio or TV yeah. interviews. Yeah, and
1: uh, <laughs> so. Uh, lamb and lion set the interview up and so i called the station we were in seattle and uh right before i hung up the girl on the phone she said uh hey by the way would you would you bring a copy of your album with you it, was, it dawned on me they'd never heard our music oh wow right yeah and so <laughs> we go we go to the radio station i've got my album under my arm and we go inside in those days they played records. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. Yeah, drop the needle. Yeah, drop yeah. the needle on an album. And uh so the the, <laughs> the DJ said, Well what do you think would be a good song that our that our fans would like? And and we had done a remake of an old hymn called Wayfair and Stranger on our first mm-hmm. album. And I said, Well, let's let's try that one. People will be familiar with that and that'll be a good one. So we he asked a couple questions and then he he said, well, let's listen to Wayfair and Stranger by De Garmo and Key. And so he dropped the needle, and the song starts out fairly mellow. And, you know, about 30 seconds in, it gets a little more aggressive. And about another 30 seconds in, Dana starts playing a solo that kind of sounds like Jimi Hendrix. The guy, the DJ, reaches over me to get the, the needle off of the album and hits it, and it scratches all the way across the album, all, you know, the needle
0: yeah. on air oh my god
1: <laughs> and, wow. and picks it up oh it was a great uh, moment ne- oh. needless to say that that the interview didn't last too much longer after
0: that that's incredible i mean well you know i even remember like we were sitting here before you got here just playing some some songs some of my favorite songs from your early albums i mean songs like i, I we just went through a revelation series at my church and oh, i right. immediately thought of six 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 yeah and going you know that's uh that was, a, that was a bold step to have a song like that on your record to, you know, just, again, talk about things that were, I think, for maybe if you're in your 30s and 40s at the, in that era, you're kind of like, we don't need to sing about that stuff. But for people my age, late teens, early 20s, we're like, yeah, bring it on. That's the kind of stuff I want to hear.
1: Well, you know, when I gave my life to Jesus that night in 1972, David Wilkerson was preaching and he was telling about Jesus coming back. I'd never heard that. I grew up in church a little yeah. bit, right? Mm-hmm. I, I never knew Jesus was coming back. I was like, hey, he'd been here once. What do you need to come back for? And I think the way that I was convicted that night is I was very afraid to face Jesus. Mm. And I was like, well, if I'm so cool, you know, and being a Baptist and all, why am I so afraid? And that was the way that the Holy Spirit convicted me. So, yeah, we, we wrote quite a few songs about the second coming. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the 666 is the different side of the coin Yeah, about the what happens in Revelation. Well, I thought so, it was cool when well, I first heard
0: it. I still do. I still go back and play that every once in a while.
1: That's awesome. That was our f- first video that MTV played. Yeah, I remember. And then they, yep. they made a wonderful faux pas, faux pas on our behalf as they dropped the video saying it was too violent. Oh, it had,
0: had a warning to it. That's
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, and the thing that was really interesting about it is that th- at that time, the Christian TV stations were playing it, but MTV dropped it because they said it was too too violent. Incredible. Incredible. Well, it became a huge news story. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal wrote an article about it, and then it ended up on the Today Show. Yeah. And CBS Evening News. Which is good for business. It turned to be the biggest press yeah. bonanza we'd ever had over being too violent for MTV. <laughs> yeah, pretty funny. Wow.
0: So you talk about uh, radio being uh, slow to play your music and being out with Amy kind of showed you that there was another, there's another gear you could get to, Mm -hmm. to get your music to a wider audience. Um, Like when, when did that start with you? What album did that start with you?
1: Uh, It was started in a major way with an album called Mission of Mercy. Right. And we had a big song on that record. Uh, number one song and pretty much all the formats called let the whole world sing yeah and that was the song really that broke us to a huge demographic much wider audience and we started you know selling a lot more albums and stuff and our critics were very um ready to pounce on that that we had sold out and i've never hidden from the fact that it was a compromise yeah you know i said yeah i mean Sold out maybe a little extreme to, to use that language, but was it a compromise to address the radio audience? Absolutely. Uh,
0: as a fan, though, I never felt that. I, I you know, to me, because I, I was hearing where music was going with the albums I was buying. And it was good. As long as it was good, I was going to listen to it. I didn't, didn't bother me that you went a yeah. little bit different direction. Well, keyboards were real
1: in, in those yeah, days. Yeah, that's true. And synthesizers true. and all that stuff. Yep. And I was, you know, deep into all that programming and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing when we did that album. And uh, a fellow Oklahoman, you would know this name, a fellow named Bob Farrell. Oh yeah. From Farrell and Farrell. Uh, it was the first DMK song that we had ever had a co writer on was Let the Whole World Sing, and he helped us craft that song to an audience, you know, a wider audience. So
0: I was gonna I was gonna guess your biggest hit was destined to win. Probably was. Was yeah. it? probably was, yeah,
1: you know, uh, or even on the rock side, Rock Solid. Oh, yeah. And some of those songs uh, probably destined to win on the Christian radio side. Mm-hmm. But even today, when I look at the streams and the videos and all that sort of thing, that one's still pretty high, but Rock Solid and uh, Boycott Hill and a couple of those yeah. other rock songs oh, have crept man, up there, man. too. So many memories. Yeah, man. That's so. good
0: stuff. Well, when when was it time to part ways like when did you feel like that was time to move on and do some other things
1: well you'll remember some of this because i think we were at the same company where you you guys came a little after us we were at benson and benson yeah uh-huh. and we were at benson all through the 80s. i didn't realize that we were at benson all through the 80s okay and um uh, you came about 1990 i think uh-huh. somewhere right. thereabouts yep and uh we were there 85 86 87 And those were tough years for the Benson Company, Uh, which for for the fans that don't know, Benson was one of the major players in Christian music for like a hundred years. Oh yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I remember. I remember having Steve Green on earlier, and he you know talked about the Archer's first contract was with Benson. I'm like, wow, that I didn't. I mean, I knew Benson went way back. With gospel music, oh, they go way back. But I didn't realize how far back they went
1: it, with contemporary. It's like eighteen ninety eight or something. Wow. Back to the songbook era. Yeah. But um, and of course, in today's world, the uh, Provident more or less mm-hmm. is built on the ashes of Benson. Right. Right.
0: Oh, we uh, we yeah we turned the lights off at Benson. Yeah. Our we we finished our contract. I think it was us and New Song were the last, the last two artists on the label in. We, we saw the last guys that we started out with walk out the door. Well,
1: we had an interesting thing happen in Benson, and it was God's timing because I wasn't smart enough to pull this one off. But uh, Carmen had left, Benson yeah. had gone yeah. to word, and Sandy Patty had left, Benson uh-huh. had gone to word.
0: You know who else left? Stephen Curtis Chapman.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. And be- he, was a, he
0: was a staff writer.
1: And we, at that time, were the were their largest selling artist that was left, and our contract had wow. expired in 1986. And, uh, the president of Benson came to see us play in Birmingham, Alabama. And he drove down this custom van and we were going home to Memphis that night. And he offered me and Dana and our manager a ride back to Memphis. Why don't you guys, I'll take you to Memphis. It's only like three and a half hours and we can talk. So I was sitting up front and our manager, Dan was in the back with his head stuck in between us. It was pretty funny. (laughs) And Bill, The president at the time, he said, you know, I know Benson's on the ropes right now. We've lost Sandy. We've lost Carmen, you know, and you guys are out of contract. He said, what's it going to take for us to to be able to resign you? And I said, you know, if you would just give us all our albums and all of our songs back, we can figure this out. I know the answer to that. So we did. And they did. Oh, really? Yeah, they did. Wow. That's I'm That's one huge. Of, I'm one of the only artists that I know of that ever achieved that.
0: Oh my god. And
1: it was it was really more about their the timing of where they were as a company. They were on the ropes. And they figured if they lost us it was going to be really tough for them. And uh, so they returned all of our records and all of our songs to us. Mm-hmm. And we had to form a holding company to do something with them. So we formed a, a Label called Forefront. Well, I want to get to that in a minute. And that that yeah. was originally to house all the and key masters and copyrights. Yeah. And then we did international deals because Benson had our uh, U.S. domestic rights, mm-hmm. but they didn't have our international rights. So we did all of, all of our rights around the world. And that was how we funded our little indie label. Wow.
0: Well, so Forefront becomes pretty huge in the next few years but mm-hmm. i still want to know what was the impetus for you and dana stopping touring and going your separate ways because well, i know i know dana went became a pastor and it was me actually yeah.
1: I, I started that it was uh early 90s about 92 93 again we had finished our recording commitment to benson and uh there was a fellow that ran it in those days you'll remember this name wes Farrell. yeah was his name oh yeah and, uh, and Wes wanted to resign us and I had gotten pretty involved in Forefront. Dana was an original partner in Forefront, but he only stayed in for about a year. He just didn't really dig the record business that much. Yeah. So we bought, bought his stock out early on and I had gotten more and more involved in just creating the products and the videos and all that sort of thing for the label and, uh, felt like that I was really being divided. With my time, because what my week would look like, Andy, is, you know, we would tour on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I'd get home Sunday, then I'd, who was still living in Memphis, I would drive to Nashville and work at Forefront Mm. Monday through Thursday and then go back out on the road. And it wasn't fair to my wife and family and not me either. And I did that for about a year. Mm. So I went to Dana in 1992, and I said, "You know, man, we're out of our contract. We finished our commitment. I think it's time for me to hang it up." And the cool thing about that was that we were still pretty uh, relatively popular in the marketplace. You know, our albums were still doing pretty well, and our tours were still doing pretty well. And I just never wanted to be the the old boxer, you know. Yeah. That, You know, kind of wrote it all the way down.
0: Well, you want to have the decision. Yeah. You want to make the decision to go instead of
1: someone pushing you out or, you know, saying we don't want you anymore. Fortunately. Yeah. So, Wes Ferrell wanted to re-sign us and do some more records with us, but uh, I was the one that went to Dana and said, I think it's time for me to step away. And then I stepped away in 1992. Now it took, uh, you'll relate to this too, it took us two years to get out of all of our commitments. Mm Mm-hmm concerts and different things we were doing
0: yeah. i told know. for him i wanted out in 99 and it took until 2006 well there you go yeah to, that to hold that the whole
1: thing yeah, play it, out, yeah. It, it takes a while especially when you've been blessed to you know have so many things mm-hmm. and, that you're doing and involved with and so that so i stepped away we played our last concert in uh summer of 94 at a festival called kingdom bound yep and didn't play again together as a group until early 2004, or five, something like that. Uh, ASCAP was giving us a Lifetime Achievement Award and asked if we could reform the band and play at the party.
0: And so how we, long did that take to get back in shape for that? Oh,
1: not very long, like riding a bicycle, man. Yeah, oh, you that's know? cool. We got the same old guys together, and yeah. in 15 minutes, we were telling the same jokes. That's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> you know, how I know that feeling.
0: Oh, I know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. And we were talking earlier about, you know, I I actually got to see you live for the first time, which is incredible that we are on the same label, which I totally didn't remember, and just grew up listening to you. I could, I'm sure, I had plenty of chances to go see, and it just never happened. I got to see you guys play on a cruise that we, we were on as well. I remember I sat way up i could only, i found i got in late and i sat way up in the top balcony of whatever that room was on the ship and i just thought i think you guys only played for like 45 minutes so i'm like, like that. this needs to be a two-hour show because
1: you're just now scratching the surface of everything i love about the and king it was fun to do I, I remember that that would have been somewhere around 2007 eight somewhere thereabouts uh but after we played that ascap uh awards dinner you know, Dana's like, man, this is really fun. Why don't we do this maybe some more? And I was really involved in the business side at the time. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, I, I might could do it once every year or 18 months or something like that. So that's what we would do about mm-hmm. every 18 months. We would get together and we did that cruise. Yeah. Uh, we did the Cornerstone music festival one summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we played our, our last gig ever was at a biker's rally at, um, I can't remember the name of the place. You'll probably remember it. It's, uh, some sort of big camp in the, uh, Smokies. Yeah. But it was us in Oliver North. Uh, how, oh, wow. How, how weird is that one?
0: <laughs> so,
1: uh, <laughs> Wouldn't have guessed that. It was a thousand bikers. Yeah, and wow. we played and, uh, I talked to Dana that night. I had, I had to fly to New York City the next morning. Mm-hmm. And so I drove home uh, with my son-in-law, and Dana called me, and he goes, man, I had a good time. He said, I sure wish we would do this some more. And uh, And then he asked me that night kind of an interesting question. He said, you know, he said, I saw we're on the Hall, Hall of Fame ballot again, and, and Johnny Cash is on it this year. Wouldn't it be cool if we got to do that with, with him because he's a native Memphian, right? So that that year we were voted into the Hall of Fame. Oh wow! So that was congratulations. A, that was the last time I talked to Dana. He passed wow. away a week after that. Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah. It, so he was. I remember. I remember getting the news of that. And uh, so was he sick at the time when you were?
1: No, he died of what's known as a pulmonary embolism. Oh yeah, blood clot in the lower leg uh-huh. that travels up and somehow gets lodged in your lungs and your heart. Mm. So and sudden. Uh, died suddenly and uh now he had had one of those clots in the past and so um was aware of that but that's how he died Mm -hmm. but no he wasn't in bad health i mean you wouldn't know it by looking at him yeah you know and he was pastoring in memphis he was pastoring in memphis yeah really our buddy clay cross was yeah man worked with him for a long time Yeah, had a really strong solid church in memphis that i went and spoke at and played at several times over the years called The Love of Christ TLC Church. And uh, he was doing well. But, yeah, died suddenly in June of 2010. Mm -hmm. And that story, it's even got a a little bit of what I would call a normal Dana Key twist in it. And uh, they planned, the family had planned to have a memorial service at their church But before the memorial service, they were going to do, before it, they were going to do a graveside service that morning with just immediate family. Mm -hmm. And, of course, his mom and dad always thought of me as family, and so they called me and Susan and asked us if we would come to the graveside service. And I don't know if you ever experienced Memphis in in June, but it's, you know. It's pretty hot. It's pretty hot. (laughs) And and sticky. 98% humidity. (laughs) So it's like 10 o'clock. Dana's brother-in-law comes up to me we're all standing out there by the gravesite you know he goes Eddie we got a problem I said what he said I just got a call from the preacher that's doing the service here and somehow he got mixed up and thought it was at 11 and it's at 10 and he said we got all these people standing there was about 50 people and I'd say most of them were in their late 70s or yeah. 80s you know yeah we can't we can't yeah he's hang around here very long he said they're they're not gonna make it <laughs> he said what are we going to do <laughs> And I said, well, you, I said, if you'll pray to open, I'll close. So I preached Dana's funeral. Oh, no way. You know, impromptu. Yeah. At his graveside. And uh, I I joke about it now. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the only time that I ever spoke to him where he stayed still. (laughs) 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 So, uh, but yeah, and then we had a memorial service later that afternoon. I mean, it was, there must've been 2000 people there, but Mm. you know. It was a sad day, but a glorious day for him too
0: well, I know that so much of what you accomplished in the in the eighties and nineties through your music um, I mean really, you had more impact in your second act by starting forefront. you mentioned it earlier, you know I feel like forefront changed the landscape of Christian
1: music well we you know, we had a good run at it. There's no doubt. Uh, and then uh, we, we need to talk. Cause I, I do have a third act that I'll throw in there okay. in a minute.
0: All right. but the, I think we all do, yeah.
1: Yeah, the second act uh, with Forefront. Uh, we were fortunate enough to work with artists like DC Talk and Audio Adrenaline. So I have to tell you this story, though. Uh, we were,
0: for him, we were probably out on the road our first year or two. And we played at Liberty. And we got a knock on the door after the concert on our bus door. And a couple of young dudes handed us a demo tape and said, hey, we're Christian rappers. We'd love for you to hear our music. And we're like, oh, yeah, thanks. Took it back in the back of the bus, put it on, laughed our heads off, and threw that
1: sure did, in the trash.
0: right? And we were like, nobody's going to listen to this.
1: That happened more times than you can know. But I bet it did. That's how we found them was through, a, well, we worked with another artist named Jeffrey Benward in those days. Mm-hmm. Had a group called Aaron and Jeffrey. Yeah. And they had played a concert at Liberty and somebody knocked on their door and gave them a tape. <laughs> and Jeff brought it back to us. He'd never even listened to it. He said, hey, you know, here's a demo I got from Liberty. Maybe it's something you guys are interested in. So that's how we discovered DC Talk.
0: And was it immediately, like, you know, immediately, like, we got to do something with this?
1: I did. We There were four partners in the business. Uh, Dana wasn't a fan of rap at that time. So he wasn't so confident. uh uh-huh. Um, but the other three of us knew. And the thing that was unique about DC Talk that it was what we were looking for is they sang their choruses and they rapped their verses. Yeah. So, you know, so much of music in in church world in those days was youth group driven. Yeah. And we felt like that it was important that they had melodies that they could sing. And they had the hooks. And they had the hooks. Yeah. So uh, DC Talk had two great singers with Michael and Kevin. hmm and then Toby the rapper, so and then it, did you pair them with Mark Heimerman? I did. Yeah, we that did. That was brilliant. That was a yeah, brilliant move. Yeah, that was actually give that credit to Dan Brock. He oh. did that. Yeah. So yeah, it was good. Heimerman was, you know, he's a great singer himself, and uh, it's funny because so many of the Church of Christ kids that grew up and in, without instruments in church. We're really good singers. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? That is true. I feel like yeah. so much of the yeah. Christian music industry was birthed out of Abilene Christian. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's yeah. right. Chris Christian and... Mike Blanton and, came from yeah, the, yeah. and uh
1: Yeah. So many, Brown
0: Bannister. Brown
1: Bannister. Yes. I was yeah. trying to think of. Yeah. I saw Brown last week. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And we had dinner yeah. together last week. Yeah. What a legend. So, um, you yeah, know, so with DC Talk and then uh, with Skillet and... Big Tent Revival from from Memphis mm-hmm. and, uh, and Jeff Moore in the distance. Uh, we sold Forefront. Dan and I were the only partners left in 1996 uh, to a big major company called EMI, and it was really, you know, I've taken a lot of slugs through the years and arrows about selling Forefront because I, you know, well, you buddied up to the man, Eddie. But it was a little different than that uh, Jars of Clay had had a huge hit with Flood. And our artist wanted that access to mainstream media yeah. the same way. Yeah, And we felt like as a Christian label, we couldn't provide it the same way. And so we wanted to team up with a major. So uh, we s- sold Forefront and did a deal with Virgin Records to take DC Talk. And a couple of other of our artists Mm -hmm. at the time. And uh, that's how I went to work for a mainstream company. Yeah.
0: Those were, again, just trailblazing days for you guys. I mean, when you think there's nothing else left to hone and no other roads to travel in an industry that's been around for you 20, 30 years, you guys really did take advantage of and, and have the foresight with Forefront to who... You know, very prophetic name there to uh, to see what was on the horizon, what kids were going to want to listen to, and what was coming down the pike.
1: Well, you know, I stayed with Forefront for three years after we sold it. And at the time that we sold that business, it was the largest independent Christian record label in the world. I don't doubt it. And uh, I had formed a music publishing business, a very boutique business called Mo, M-E-A-U-X, Mo Music. Mm-hmm. You'll see their name on a lot of the CCLI stuff these days. but uh I I had signed some really strong producer writers guy named Ted T and Pete Stewart and wow. some other guys and Bill Hearn from at the time, EMI CMG later capital Christian music came to me and he said, Eddie he said, would you come back and run our publishing business? And this was in 2002 and, uh, I said, well, Bill, I got my own publishing company. And he said, that's, he said, that's fine. Just keep it. He said, he said, if you'll let us administer that for you, he said, just keep it and run it. So I went to work as president of, of EMI Christian Music Publishing. And he said something I never will forget. He said, you know, he said, we've got this, this genre of music that, that we're kind of excited about. We don't know much about it, but it, some people call it modern worship music. and we and we got this this band called delirious Delirious. and uh he said you know he said we think there might be something here he said you know you so you could have some fun with some of that stuff and i said well i don't know anything about worship music much And he goes oh you'll do fine so over the next 15 years you know i was able to work with Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman and incredible, you know, and Matt Marr and Leland and oh my gosh, Stuart Townend and Keith Getty and Christ alone, and uh, just a plethora and saw that genre of worship music just explode mm. globally. Yeah, and uh, Andy, a pastor, came to me. I don't know, it's been five years ago now, and he said, "Eddie, he said, I know you did a lot of things in music." you know, back to D&K and Forefront and all that. But he said, I, I really think what, what you've been able to do with worship music is by far your greatest impact because he said for the first time in 300 years, churches can sing the same songs. That's incredible.
0: I never really thought about it like that,
1: that, that
0: you know, we read the same scriptures and we never all heard, we could hear the same sermons, yeah. you know, once, once the internet came around. But to all sing the same songs at the same time, that is pretty remarkable.
1: So through those years of the MI and later Capital Christian Music, uh, I'd travel all over the world, Andy, and I'd I'd go to deserts and jungles and tops of mountains and lowest valleys and everywhere I would go, I would hear these same songs. Incredible, You know, and the internet is, with, with all of its flaws, it was the thing that made that music travel around mm-hmm. the world so quickly. Wow. You know,
0: wow! Talk about a, you know, you just when you think there's there is no mountain left to climb or nothing else to mine from a certain industry, it's just that's where you just look at God and go. But but God's endless. Then there's there's going to be one more thing. There's going to be one more thing after that. You just keep doing what you love to do and you know putting your skill set to work. And that's that's just that's amazing. I love so.
1: That. Yeah, I stayed there. It was close to fifteen years and worked with some of the most incredible songwriters that you can fathom, Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, what do you got going on these days?
1: Well, not anything on that level, but a couple of cool things, you know. Um, I'm going to be a great-grandfather next year. Oh, That's congratulations. Cool. So our oldest granddaughters and her husband are going to have their first baby next year. So That's awesome. So excited about that. Um, there's a motion picture coming out next year where i'm not in it myself but somebody playing me is in it <laughs> it's pretty funny and it's it's a major motion picture being all the theaters it's called unsung hero and uh it's more or less the story of the small family if you're familiar with
0: oh yeah now. of course
1: and you know going broke in australia and coming to america and uh what started with Rebecca, their daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we called her Rebecca St. James, but Rebecca Smallbone. Right, and of course now continued with for King and Country. Right, right, and it's their whole story, and it's very moving.
0: Wow, and so you signed Rebecca. She did. She was on forefront.
1: I did. Yeah,
0: and What a what a story. I just I ran across her not long ago. She was I was singing at First Baptist Dallas. Yeah, and so was Billy Gaines, and so was so
1: Rebecca. Rebecca, all in different venues yeah. in the same church. Yeah, like and this is pretty something. cool so uh she still got down a little bit yeah. you know she's she's got three little ones now That mm-hmm. she's you know being the good mom she'll but, always be a kid sister there's yeah. so many of us yeah and uh and of course her brother's with for king and country or yeah. you know they're not knock, knocking home runs but mm-hmm. uh and i still work with them i consult them on their business deals and yeah. different stuff like that so but,
0: did you have a say
1: in who played who plays you they did, they didn't run it past me. Yeah. And it's pretty funny. I mean, when you, you'll see it next, <laughs> it comes out in theaters next April or something. Yeah. And this, this guy, he's got, of course, I had all the hair and back in the day, you know, and he's got long hair. Of course, he buttons his shirt down to his navel and I didn't do <laughs> that, you know, wears gold chains and I didn't do that. But, uh, they Hollywooded it up a little bit. Yeah. Which is what they do. It's a pretty cool story, actually.
0: That's pretty amazing. Well, you've got quite a legacy to leave to your children, grandchildren, and now great grandchildren of, not only music, but you know just the stories and the the lives that you've touched uh, through promoting music and promoting artists and and what a what a rich history that. Well, even that God's allowed you to live. I, I just it's incredible. No
1: doubt, God has allowed me to do those things, but the greatest thing that He's allowed me to do is be a part of building His kingdom that's the greatest thing and uh it's also the hardest thing and i just you know pray that i've been the good and faithful servant through all those things the business has been one that's been exciting but you know i would tell artists all the time andy i said you know when you get to heaven man jesus not going to ask for your autograph That's right it's not going to happen that's right so you gotta have something else (laughs) you gotta have something else to fall back on (laughs) and uh So I just, I pray that I've been faithful in the small things to build the kingdom of God, because that's what we're called to do. And we're not really called to do big things as much as we're called to do small things. Interesting.
0: Hey, thanks for listening. Join me every Monday for new stories from the Christian music industry and beyond. If you want more content like this, along with a lot of great music, join me for Worship with Andy Christman, airing on 500 stations around the world every weekend. And when you get a sec, run over to my website, andychristman.net, for information about my professional vocal coaching and an incredible new resource for worship pastors called The Worship Table. See you next time on the One Degree of Andy podcast.